So welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you'll find several speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Helen. Hi, everybody. My name is Helen, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi. Good meeting, huh? I've been an overeater's anonymous since 1976. And I got, came here because I put back on 100 pounds I had just lost in Weight Watchers. And it was uh, devastating, you know. Um, I was raised in a household with uh, a compulsive overeating mom and stepdad. My dad died when I was three. My mom married a man that she wanted to be like my dad, but he never was, so she constantly berated him. And uh, he was a barber, and from what I understand, not a very good one. (laughs) So... Um, there was a lot of arguments about where's the money, why didn't the guy pay you, he was a petty gambler, compulsive overeater, and just uh, mentally challenged, I think. And I'm going to tell you why I think that. As soon as my mom divorced him, he became homeless and lived in his car. So, um, you know, and it was just interesting how my mom, who I thought was very intelligent, could pick such a guy. But, you know, it was back in the day, and... Um, you know, she just didn't think she could take care of herself. And uh, I'll tell you in my story how she eventually came to take care of herself and actually ended up doing a wonderful job uh, taking care of herself. But anyway, I was raised in this very tumultuous household, and I was 100 pounds overweight by the time I was 14. And I went to Weight Watchers, and they weighed me. And at 14, they said my goal weight should be around 140. At that time, it was about 240. And I stuck to the diet. And my poor mother, you know, she made all those recipes. She made the cheesecake out of the diet cream soda and the boiled pineapple and the cottage cheese and the Knox gelatin. And he poured it in this pie thing and ate it. And, you know, all the weird stuff that she did, all the food. And, you know, and then you can imagine her dismay as I came in this way back. She's like... You know, and it all happened at the county fair, you know, the L.A. county fair. <laughs> the L.A. county fair, which is in Pomona. I don't know if you guys get out that far, but uh, that's where it is. And, uh, you know, I was raised in Covina, so it wasn't that far. And uh, that's why, you know, when I came to O.A., when I would tell my sponsor, my favorite line was, well, that's not fair. She'd always go, well, the fair is in Pomona. That was one of my favorite lines, you know, but um, at any rate, I was at the county fair, and I lost this 100 pounds, and I must say, I looked beautiful, just stunning, you know, and um, I see everybody's just having those Balboa bars dipped in chocolate, rolled in nuts, and I think, well, I just filled one of those. Why not? I've lost 100 pounds, and I'm in the line to get it. And there's, like, too many people in the line. And by the time I get up there, I'm literally shaking and I'm drooling. I know this drool, like, like some animal. And, and then I'm thinking, something is very wrong with me. I don't know what it is, but I had an inkling that I was like an alcoholic, whatever that would be like. 
But that thought didn't stop me from getting that Balboa bar. And then that weekend, I gained 10 pounds. And then I did what we all do when we gain 10 pounds. I stood on the scale and I said, well, I've learned my lesson. That's not going to happen again. And then it's like one, mo- one morning you weigh 140, and the next morning you weigh 240. And you're like that guy in the big So when I read the big book, which in 76, that's all we had. Uh, and they tell this story about the guy putting the whiskey in the milk, and then he's drunk at the bar, pounding the bar, going, how did I end up here again? That was me. How did I end up here again? How could this have happened to a nice person like me? And then I've got my mom going, what the hell are you doing? Are you just going to keep eating until you die? Uh, Do you even have a top weight? You know, just all this verbal abuse. And I was thinking, I bet you I don't I bet you I don't have a top weight. That's what I think my story is. I bet I'm one of those people without a top weight. Because when you're doing that, it feels like a runaway train. And I'm going to tell you what my theory is today. And I'm a person with a million theories. Anybody I sponsor can tell you, gosh, she's got a lot of theories. And none of these have been scientifically proven. This is just me spouting my theories. And one of my theories is, for every diet, there's an equal and opposite binge. It's just a matter of when it's coming, but it's coming. That's my theory. And I believe, had I not dieted and lost that weight in in less than a year, I would have not binged to that extent, what was so fast and furious. Like that one runaway train, you know, that uh, we all hear about, you know. So, anyway, I go to college and... I graduate and um, got the 100 pounds back on. And and I'm working the night shift to show you how security-based I am. And that's one of the things, if you write the inventory big book style, it'll ask you that question. How does this affect your security, self-esteem, personal relationships, and ambition? And from writing in that format, I have learned I'm a very security-based person. I will barter dignity and self-respect for a modicum of security. That's what I do. I like to feel secure. I like to know what's going to happen next. And can you ever know what happens next? You just really can't. So, um, anyway, uh, this lady at my work tells me she's been to a place called Overeaters Anonymous that didn't work for her, but she thinks it, <laughs> she thinks it would be great for a person like me. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Why would she think a person like me would need Overeaters Anonymous? So I said, they actually have a place like that? Because sometimes I feel like I'm an alcoholic. And she goes, yes, I know. They need to see candy around here. So um, I go there, and it's just kind of what I think. You know, to show you how pathetic my life was up to that point, I was 20 years old. And I had never been on a date, never kissed a boy, never did any of those things, you know. Um, 21, maybe. I think it was 21. Close to being 21. And um, that was the happiest day of my life, that meeting. I was so thrilled. And I was thrilled because the people there said, this is a disease. I'm like, oh, that explains it. (laughs) I'll be... 
you know? It's a disease that you didn't cause and you cannot cure. And I thought, that makes all the sense in the world. You know, and then they said it was a spiritual program. I was kind of okay with that. But at the same time, if you, you had to be back around back in 1976 to know what I meant by this. They're telling you this is a spiritual program, and at the same time, they're handing you a dice. So, um, and once again, guiding just never seemed to work for me. But I've had fits and starts. And during my abstaining period, and I'll just tell you what that felt like to me. I don't know if anybody can relate. So I'd be on what they call the gray sheet, which, which is kind of like what I think the paleo diet is now. Just like meat. Chicken, fish, vegetables, fruit. Is there anything else? I think that's it. And so with three meals a day with nothing in between and no bread, no white flour, no sweets, no. So I would hang on like this and give lip service to praying, which I never did, but I want you all to think I was doing the deal. So, um, and I'd do it for a month or two and then something would flip and I can't explain what it, is, what it was. But there was one moment where I had control over the food and then it would flip and the food would get control over me. And then this thought would go, well, let's, let's just say I had a graham cracker. Well, I've blown it anyway. What difference does it make? I might as well binge until I drop because I've blown it. And I know that doesn't make much sense, but that's what we do. That's a very common story. We are very punitive in our dieting and very twice as punitive in our compulsive overeating. And I did that in a way for the first nine years. And I want to tell you, uh, I was not a visitor. I was a member. And I'll tell you the difference between the two of them, in case you don't know. You've probably seen a lot of the visitors. Um, members avail themselves to the membership benefits of this program. Just like if you belong to a club, there would be some mem- I don't belong to any clubs, but let's just say I did. There would be membership benefits of that club, you know, and one of them is to go to meetings, to get buoyed up when you're down, to call when you want to compulsively overeat. The steps are a benefit, a new relationship with God. Those are the membership benefits. I availed myself to all those benefits. So I was not a visitor. I had a sponsor. I went to three meetings a week. I had a service position at one of those meetings, and it still didn't work. And uh, finally, I got a sponsor that said, well, why don't you just don't eat your trigger foods? You should abstain from a few things forever, (laughs) probably. And uh, if you do make a bad food choice, you're no longer allowed to binge until you drop. That has to stop. Because you know it's all that binging that puts the weight on you, right? You know, nobody gets fat from one graham cracker. <laughs> they don't. Or probably, and I won't even say probably even from one candy bar. You know, and you get fat from, oh, just forget it. I can't do this. I'm just going to go hog wild. And that's where all the fat comes on, you know, at least it did for me. So, I want to say that uh, I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, even before that time in the first nine years. Uh, I read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I did the steps. I had a sponsor. I admitted that I was powerless over food. I had never known the same life. I didn't grow up in the same home. 
But I can tell you I got a glimpse when I called my sponsor. Her name was Beverly, and she had two kids still at home, like 16 and 18. And the way she talked to her children was so respectful. Okay, honey, take care. Did you get that sandwich I made you? (laughs) Seriously. And I thought, oh. You know, and I would tell her, I'd be all wound up about things that happened at work. And she'd say, oh, honey, you can't say that. You'll get fired. In fact, Beverly was the first person to say these words to me. Don't say that. That's inappropriate. (laughs) Nobody ever told me anything was inappropriate. Everything about me was inappropriate. inappropriate. Uh, I'm a registered nurse, and at the time I was working in a critical care unit on the night shift, and they came up with this bright idea that they were going to let the housekeepers go and the RNs would be emptying the trash cans. So, of course, I had to call my sponsor and tell her, I didn't go to school to empty trash cans, and it's not right to empty trash cans. I'm going to tell all the other nurses not to empty the trash cans. And she said, Helen, wouldn't it just be easier to empty the trash cans? (laughs) But I didn't want what was easy. I wanted what was fair and right and just and what belonged to me and what I deserved. All these thoughts, the minute I think this thought, I'm in trouble. Wait a minute, it shouldn't be this way. (laughs) When I have that thought, when I have that thought, we're in big trouble. Says who? Says life, it just comes at you as it comes at you. We don't sign up for certain things. And my first spiritual awakening was taking her directive and quietly emptying those trash cans without saying a word. And boy, that was a spiritual experience because I'd never done anything I didn't want to do. You know? And here she was telling me that I had to just blend in and be quiet. You know? And then you read in the big book that we don't eat because we're hungry. We eat because we're restless irritable and discontent. And we want that peace and ease that comes at once when we take that extra bite. Overeaters Anonymous shows you how to live a different life so you're constantly not like this on the freaking edge. Trying to manipulate the players on the stage, trying to get your way. And it, you know, the big book kind of talks in a nice way about two kinds of people. One person like me, loud, aggressive, and obnoxious. And they say, these aren't good people. These people are trying to get their way. And then there's the other kind of person, calm, sweet, ingratiating, kind. Even they are trying to, and I love the terminology, wrestle satisfaction from life. And when you picture that wrestling, so I'm going to be satisfied wrestling something to the ground. I just have an obnoxious way of doing it. And all those sweet people that are so kind with a good reputation, the big book knows who you are. Okay? Because it's talking about you there. So don't think you're off the hook because everybody else thinks you're sweet. You You think just like I do, you just conceal it better. We're all the same underneath. We are all the same. It's just that people like me have the bad rap. You know, and get called names and stuff. And then you guys are quietly behind the scenes trying to wrestle satisfaction. 
and I'm like, oh, finally, somebody sees it, you know, and I read that. We're all, you know, we're all alike, you know. And uh, when I came in, I don't know, Mickey, do you remember Webster? Webster was the old stage of Overeaters Anonymous. And when I say old, I mean the age I am now. <laughs> so, you know, I've been in for 40 years, and he's come in, and he always carried a briefcase, and he could quote anything, you know, and he'd always tell these riddles that, in fact, this particular riddle I'm going to tell you didn't make sense to me until I was well into my 40s, because I don't do well with riddles. <laughs> and, and I didn't understand what it had to do with compulsive overeating and being overweight. He'd say, do you know the difference between a neurotic and a psychotic? And everybody would go, no, you know. And he'd go, oh, I'll tell you what the difference is. The psychotic thinks two plus two is three. The neurotic knows two plus two is four, but he can't stand it. And that's me. I know life is it's coming down the pike at me, and I can't stand it. And it better change, and it's not fair. You know, a wise person says, you know, when faced with an inconvenient truth, we move very quickly from denial to despair. I knew those inconvenient truths as they were coming down the road at me. And I'd go, no, that can't be. I'm not ready for another job. No. Oh, no, I've got to go back to school? I don't have the money for that. Oh, no, this marriage is bad and I need to get out? Oh, no, I'm not ready for that. We know what's true. Intuitively. But we're the only only animal that doesn't trust our instinct. And an overeater is anonymous, and you're a compulsive overeater. You pay dearly by eating compulsively when you ignore all the inconvenient truths. And I did that for years. I, I ignored everything that was inconvenient that I didn't want to deal with. So in those first uh, couple years, my mom divorces the guy, my stepdad. I've got a brother who at the time is, 13 or 14, and she says, well, you've got to support me now. I don't Who's going to take care of me? And I go, well, you're going to go back to work. And she goes, to do what? I'm not going to do anything. I'm, nobody's going to hire me. I'm an old woman. And I said, well, I'll pay for you to go to a little, like, adult education. She took this little medical transcribing course that was, like, six months. And she said, I still cannot get a job. You know what I did? I left the country. <laughs> I lived in Jamaica for six months and it's like try to find me now mom and you know I was gone I want to say two weeks she got a job and she worked at that job until she was 72 years old full time and the only reason she left is because she passed out there and they carried her, carried her out in a gurney that's a true story <laughs> Yeah, she was the greatest worker. She was really well-liked at her job. Yet she was so scared to do it, and once she finally did it, had she done it 40 years later, she wouldn't have had to marry the guy that was a bad barber. <laughs> you know? And then all up in my business about my food. You know? She would have had her own life. She would have had her own life. So anyway, I moved to Jamaica. I go there with my best friend, Debbie. Uh, Debbie and I were the two fattest girls in the high school. And um, so we became friends, of course. And we lived in Jamaica for six months. We didn't work at all there. We just hung out on the beach and 
went to parties and and I actually thought because of where we, we lived in Port Antonio, which was kind of remote and jungly, that there wouldn't be much food there. Well, it, and let me tell you, back then, I don't know how it is now, but unless you got to the supermarket on Friday afternoon, you'd get there on Saturday and it's like, where's all the food? All the shelves would be empty. It's just like so weird. And um, I was getting hungry. And um, there I was, out, and, and, and for a part of that time, I lived with this rough safarian in this hut out in Robbins Bay, and um, he would literally say, I'd go, where's the food? And he'd go, man, the sea is rough. And I'd go, what does that mean? Does that, does that mean I am not eating today? The sea is rough. What does that mean? This is not good. Does this mean rice and bananas again? Yeah. So there I am in back of the hotels at 3 in the morning making black market deals to those little boxes, raisin brands, that they give to the hotels. You know, the little boxes you get at the hotels? I was making deals. <laughs> Paying them at 3 in the morning to give me raisin brands. If that's not like an addict, I don't know what is, you know. So, you know, and every once in a while I would get a sponsor. I came back home after about six months, and every once in a while I'd get a sponsor and work the steps again. And I'll tell you, when you're when you're um, not eating, when you're doing well, you can't imagine there'll be a day that you'll eat again because you just feel so fabulous. But we're not a group of people that keep these memories snug in our head. It's just like we have very short memories of, of, of how bad it used to be. We're just um, so clueless in a lot of respects. And so when I come to meetings, I can tell you, after you've been here a while, nobody's going to say anything profound anymore. Nobody's going to say anything you haven't heard anymore. And you're going to come here for one reason, to remember who you are because everybody will be telling the same story. You're like, oh, yeah, that happens when I do that, too. Because we forget who we are. The last debacle I was telling somebody, I think I was telling Elham, I went to this party, and um, somebody made pecans thank you, that um, they home-baked and they rolled them in something. I ate so many of those pecans by the time the salmon came, I couldn't eat. And it's like another thing on the list, pecans. You know, I just can't do that, you know. Um, just want to tell you another uh, little story that kind of summarizes, you know, my steps and the way that um, my character defects work. Um, if you write the big book style, you can only come up with one thing at the end of your resentment. Where are you at fault? That's not a good place to end up. And I would be like, well, when are they going to find out when they're at fault? And, uh, and uh, you know, and this, where are you at fault, helps you to change some of your actions to live a more fruitful and productive life. Well, I've been married three times. When I got married the second time, that was going to be the last and final marriage. And um, I was 35 years old at the time. And... Um, I asked my brother if he would walk me down the aisle because I had no dad, no stepdad, no uncles, no grandparents, no men in my life at all. 
And uh, he said, well, I don't know if I can afford the tuxedo. And I was like, you loser, who are you? <laughs> and so I call my sponsor. And you know what she says to me? Well, if I were you, I'd rent him that tuxedo. You're the one that wants it. And I said, obviously, she doesn't know anything about Al-Anon. That would be enabling him. He, he spends more than that on pot. He's a loser. So I did the logical thing and did not speak to him for two years because my sponsor was wrong and I was right. Two years later, he calls me and says, I'm getting married. I met this wonderful girl. Will you come to the wedding? And I... Okay, maybe two years is long enough. So I go to the wedding, and it's there I have this spiritual awakening. At his own wedding, he is not wearing a tuxedo. <laughs> and then it's like, gosh, she was right! When you want people to do for you what they are unable to do for themselves, that is selfish and self-pity. Just as the big book says, just as my sponsor tried to tell me, I wasn't having it. To have peace of mind, I have to let you off the hook. I have to tell myself a different story about you. If I want peace, we need to rewrite this story. And I don't know what I'm going to tell myself about you, but it better be good. <laughs> because I can't afford to think that you're evil, out to get me, don't like me, um, greedy, I can't afford to think you're selfish, self-centered. I can't afford to think that you're flawed, frail, misunderstood, maybe even mentally ill. All those are better stories, you see, that allow me to have the peace I need to navigate in my life. For the first time, I have a job that I've had for 20 years. I never kept a job more than two years because somebody would make me mad there. And I thought, well, I'll show them, I'll leave. And then, in the two weeks that you give that notice, I'm always thinking, well, of course they'll want me back. They'll acquiesce to my demand. And they'll change this whole hospital around for me. And then, you know, nobody ever asked me back. Nobody ever said, please reconsider, Helen. Nobody. I've had this job for 20 years, and it matches the talents I have with something I think the world needs. I teach. I have a teaching credential. I went back to school. And, um, you know, it's just my life is fabulous. I've been married to this husband for 12 years. A lot of people in here know him. He's just a wonderful guy, self-supporting for his own contributions from my dad. Not, not addicted. Uh, just normal, peaceful, not all high-strung like me. And I uh, got pregnant very late in life. I didn't think I would be a good mother, and I probably wasn't. Um, uh, I waited until I was 40. So I have a daughter that's turning 21 in uh, June. And i got to tell you, uh, child rearing is finishing school. Those of you with children probably know that. And it's, she's just been the greatest blessing to me. And she's so normal. Like, Six months later, she would have some of her Halloween candy left. You know, and she's just normal in a lot of other ways, in the way she perceives the world. Because as things started to go wrong in her little girl life, you know what I did? I read all those bad people off the hook for her, you know. And that's something my mom didn't do. She got, she, this was my mom's favorite line. Who needs it? 
Get rid of them. You don't need that trouble in your life. Get rid of them. Yeah, that was my mom. So, um, you know, I've spent a lifetime of letting everybody off the hook, letting myself off the hook, being gentle, uh, going to meetings, working hard, and what I think is doing God's, God's will for me, you know, and I always pray about that. Uh, anyway, thank you for allowing me to be your speaker tonight. <laughs> Are there any questions? Nikki? Well, Helen, uh, please, uh, could you please uh, speak about um, you know, how you work uh, your spiritual program, and your, your daily spiritual life? Nikki asked me how I work my daily spiritual life. It's a hard question to answer because I don't have a daily routine, but I will say most of the day, I'm in constant prayer and a lot of the days doing things I don't want to do (laughs) because somebody else told me it was a good idea. When I'm in my own will, I'm doing just what I want to do irrespective of the consequences. When I'm in God's will, I'm usually running these silly stories like the ones I've told you by another person with a better perspective. That's what a sponsor is. A sponsor, it, it can be anybody. You know, when I um, have issues with my daughter. I call people that have kids that age, you know. Uh, so I guess I work my program by letting go of the things that I want in exchange for the things I need. That's what I'd say about that. Yes. Yes, I would love to. <laughs> Um, I eat three meals a day with usually one snack in between, and there's only a few foods on my list, a few things that I don't eat. Like I said, the nuts are now on the list. Um, I have, Oh, and this time, I didn't even tell you how long I've been abstaining, 17 years this time. I had a break, you know, I had a break after my, um, uh, when that marriage went bad, you know, the one with the tuxedo. Um, so... Um, I've been abstaining from binging, compulsive overeating. I haven't had a donut in 17 years. I haven't had a Reese's peanut butter cup in 17 years. Any cookie that comes in a bag I haven't had for 17 years. And for the last seven years, I haven't eaten any fat food. None. Yeah. Not a Carl Jr., not, a, not, even, a, not even the fancy uh, Chinese one that everybody likes that's so cheap. Not even that one. Yeah, and so that's been a real big thing for me. So, um, and just usually I don't eat sweet because for me, there's certain foods that are trigger foods for me. I just can't eat them like a lady. And so it's just better that I not eat them. But I can tell you, if I did, I wouldn't throw up my hands and binge until I drop. That, I can tell you, would not happen. That's a luxury I can't afford. For me, that binging was worse and the dysfunction of being overweight. And I can tell you, because I'm an old person now, uh, and a little bit overweight, I think, you know, but when you're young and heavy, you don't feel it. When you're old, 10, 20 pounds overweight, everything is aching, <laughs> you know. And then you see people my age, only 60, pushing little carts, limping, you know. That is 
that immobility really scares me. I, that, to me, that's worse than, you know, looking overweight to me. So, um, yeah, it's not a very specific food plan. Anybody call? Yes. The evolution, she asked me, the evolution of my relationship with my higher power. Um, like I said, I don't have a daily meditation practice, but I have a daily prayer practice. And as the day wears on, things happen. And when you call people, like I said, I hear God speaking through all of you. I hear it at meetings. I listen to what, you know, my sponsor says. And, um, oh, is it over? Okay. That's it? So, should I sit down? Okay. Okay. Um, so, it has evolved a lot because I'm more willing to put aside those behaviors. And those behaviors, for me, are always trying to get my way. You know, I... You know, I think I know what's best for me, even though my whole life has shown me I really don't. I think I know where I should live, what kind of husband I should have, what kind of car I should drive, where I should be working. And if I have something, it's because if I have a husband, that's the husband I'm meant to have for my spiritual pruning. And that's what I'll say. When things happen, I don't complain as much. I know they're for my spiritual pruning. That's what I'll say about that. So, anyway, thank you so much.